This is Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about Mi'kmaq people, politics, land and water. Welcome to episode 262. Quay hello, I'm Glenn Wheeler. Pacific and Atlantic coasts, important developments in the fight against fish farms. On the south coast of Newfoundland, there was joy a few weeks ago with the announcement that Parks Canada would enter into discussions with Mi'kmaq nations, the province, and the town of Burgio on a marine conservation area. But there's a wrinkle. The province has designated the same area for fish farms, and some on Burgio Town Council think they can have aquaculture and a protected marine area. We'll see about that. Here on the Atlantic coast, we've used the phase-out of fish farms in BC as an example of what we want, an argument for equal treatment. But there have been some hiccups on the Pacific coast also. The transition away from fish farms has been delayed, and Joyce Murray, a woman with a background in environmental protection and working with Indigenous people, has been replaced by Diane Le Boutelier. We reached out to one of the leaders of the fight to rid the BC coast of fish farms, Bob Chamberlain, chair of the First Nations Wild Salmon Alliance. We asked Bob about what's going on out there and what advice he has for those out here who think that fish farms are a good fit with marine protection. Great, Bob. So let's, uh, first of all, before we talk about the departure of Joyce Murray as Federal Minister of Fisheries, let's talk about what's been happening on the West Coast, on the Pacific Coast, regarding the uh, phase-out of fish farms transition and the latest developments. People will remember that we had the initial announcement. Then there was the federal court decision that uh, said the fish farm companies weren't given procedural fairness, and then it was back at it. So where are we right now in the transition process? Uh, Right now, we have just begun phase three of the four-phase process. And so phase one was DFO explaining their ideas and what they thought might happen. Uh, Phase two was where people that were participating or First Nations that were participating in the transition planning process were able to articulate their views and perspectives. And of course, so we had a what we heard report from phase two. And so for phase three, we're able to take a look at what uh, a roll-up summary of what both sides of the equation have spoken of. And it's the opportunity to Uh, for lack of a better phrase, tear apart the opposition's um, standings, or not standings, but their their vision to go forward. Um, So this is something that's just begun. Uh, We haven't, the the final written submissions need to be in by September 15th, and the process ends on September 30th. But the one thing that that we noticed is um, when the transition planning process was first announced, you know, a number of years back, or the, yeah, the, the directive to DFO to develop a transition plan. We identified 102 First Nations 
that supported that transition. And of course, that position was advanced, uh, seeing the impact that this has on our Aboriginal rights, which we all know are constitutionally protected, and the effects it has on wild salmon. And then since this transition planning process has begun, uh, the most recent count that we've put together is 123 First Nations in British Columbia support the transition planning process. Now, to put that in a bit of context, um, there's 203 First Nations in British Columbia. And it's been said to me that 90% of those rely on wild salmon. So that's 180 First Nations. So 123 out of 180. That's, that's easily seen as a, a, a quite a significant majority support the transition planning process. Were you concerned that the consultation period was extended uh, into the fall? Initially, we thought it would things would be done by June. Then mm. we had a visit uh, to Ottawa by the uh, the fish farm companies talking to DFO and the, the prime minister's office. And then these talks were extended. What did you make of that? Um, I wasn't surprised. Um, my observation is I don't think the Department of Fisheries and Oceans was prepared uh, to advance the all the work that was necessary for the consultation. Uh, as an example, um, I've been working on behalf of Homolco First Nation in a consultation, and we asked for the data from the sea lice paper, and we have never received it. And we asked for forms, disease reporting forms, which we've never received. And we've asked for those since January. And so what we saw is the, the, the rationale from the department is we're overwhelmed. We don't have the staff. So I wasn't too surprised to see it extended. Um, ideally, it would have been best to have it wrap up when it was intended to. But I think now we have you know, both sides of the equation have a stronger opportunity or certainly a little bit more breathing room to articulate the positions that they have and to hopefully develop a, a consultation record that gives the foundation for the minister to make the right decision. Right. And I, and I guess you want that because, um, you know, we, we've seen before that the fish farm companies will go to court. So if they see an opening, I guess um, they'll take it. So you want it to have it, as we say in a different uh, context, judgment proof. So you want it done properly. Yeah, the uh, certainly you want to have an outcome that has durability, yes. and an outcome that has all the parameters of opportunity to have everyone's views expressed and responded to. And so with any with good fortune, the outcome will be what the majority of First Nations of British Columbia want. And we'll see further steps from the federal government to take more meaningful um, actions to safeguard the food security of First Nations across the province of B.C. While all this is going on, we have a cabinet uh, shuffle uh, federally. And not only do we lose uh, Mark Miller as Minister of Crown yeah. Indigenous Relations that disappointed many people. Yeah. But we have the departure of Joyce Murray as as minister, and she's from your province. She was a minister in B.C. before she went federal. She has a, um, a record in working in the environmental context with Indigenous people. 
So she is, uh, she was a minister who understood her portfolio. And now we have a new minister uh, from uh, Quebec, and she was the uh, the minister of revenue. So I'm not sure what uh, what uh, background she has in uh, in the fisheries portfolio. Should we be concerned that we have a minister now who perhaps can't be as assertive with uh, the DFO bureaucrats as perhaps Joyce Murray was? You know, while we've seen like every government, it doesn't matter who's in, there's always a cabinet shuffle. Uh, Joyce Murray uh, experienced that to come in as a Department of Fisheries and Oceans Minister. And I think what we are relying upon or what I'm wishing and hoping for is that there has been enough information provided within the machine of DFO in the consultation process. And when the minister is brought up to speed, the new minister brought up to speed understands the support that's present amongst First Nations for her government's commitment to transition these these fish farms from the ocean. The way that I've heard it spoken, you know, whether it's at the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, Chiefs Council, or the First Nations Summit meetings or the BC AFN over the years, it's about the vast majority of First Nations that want to see the protection of wild salmon, period. And when we look at the hit, the runs that have occurred over the past four years, we've had two were very, uh, they were historic low returns to the Fraser River. And then we had the year following that, those two, were 50% of what was projected returned. So we're not in a state where there's healthy and abundant wild salmon stocks. And this year is the first year of return after the big bar landslide. And so this is a lot of First Nations I've been speaking to up and down the Fraser. They're focused on that because they were in poor condition to begin with, the run Mm -hmm. size. And now with this natural disaster, everything becomes so, it, it underlines or amplifies the critical need to protect what's left and find ways to, um, do what we can to ensure that these salmon runs, which are important for food, culture, and traditions and the environment, don't go extinct. Mm. And, you know, it's not a, the sky is falling kind of a statement. It's the reality of a very, very low percentage of the fish that leave the river, make it back to spawn. Mm. And when you have historic low returns, you have historic low numbers leaving the rivers with a small percentage of them coming back. So it's it's logic that we're facing a downward spiral that needs some serious steps to ensure that we don't lose this incredibly valuable resource, not just for First Nations, but for all British Columbians. Mm. I heard you say something uh, in another interview that I found really shocking, which is that some First Nations in in BC have to bring in Alaska salmon because uh, they have no salmon readily available in their own area for for food and ceremonial purposes. So that's, uh, I mean, that's like the rest of us in the country going to Costco and buying uh, wild uh, wild Pacific salmon. So it is quite shocking uh, when you think about it in those terms. Oh, it, it certainly is. And the dollar value is staggering. Um, Gukbi Lampro from the Squaxum Tribal Council around the Merritt area, he showed me the invoice that his nation paid 
and it was like eight hundred thousand dollars to provide fish for the communities he represents and all that did was provide two fish per household or per member and you know when you think about our traditional uh consumption of this we'd eat three or four of those a week let Mm -hmm. alone two for the year yes and then now what happens is i mean there's a you know this abundancy from alaska um i live in powell river which is the traditional lands of the Tla'aman people and they have they're waiting to secure fish from the skeena river up in northern bc and this is something that we became aware of in the territory where my the people I am from are, which is the Broughton Archipelago. And we noticed low returns, so we weren't able to harvest fish in our lands and waters. So we would then catch the Fraser River stocks, which increased the pressure. And so now that the Fraser River stocks are now plummeting to the point of near extinction, we're going to be putting greater pressure on the Skeena. So we're just moving the pressure around and impacting the runs. And so this is where um, I've heard the pro fish farm side of things talk about wanting a full economic analysis of the impacts. And if they, if we were to do a full economic analysis, the loss to First Nations across this province would be in the probably hundreds of billions of dollars because of what it would cost to replace that. Mm whether it's Alaskan or Costco or what have you. But that's the level of impact this industry has. And the impact and loss is for people like for for my aunties and other nations, grandparents and so on, that are unable to do what they've always done. And so when I see the federal and provincial governments make commitments to implement the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, food security is a big piece of that, culture, traditions, environmental responsibilities, passing, you know, these these uh, traditions and cultures to our youth. And if we don't have salmon, we're unable to do that. Mm. And, you know, to give it just a little bit more context, when our when the people I am from have a, a cultural uh, event, a potlatch or a pasa, we do those things to mark a passing of a loved one for the coming of age of a young girl, um, a marriage. Um, there's a whole range of feasts that and potlatches that we would have. And in order for our traditional leadership to exercise that, they must host our people. And in the hosting comes the provision of meals for an, a number of days. Mm. You see, so that's where salmon becomes even more integral, not just for our sustenance through the winter, but for the exercise of our culture. Mm. And that culture and traditions are our birthright and so when we see a federal department continue to make the same mistakes that they've always had um, i'm mindful of a paper and i'll email it to you it came out yesterday where a number of reputable scientists took a look at what happened in the east coast cod collapse and they examined that in relationship to what's happening today with fish farms and guess what nothing's changed Mm. So we're marching down the same road that saw this impact to to the East Coast cod fishery, which we know has not rebounded yet, Mm -hmm. decades later. And we've seen that the same mistakes are being made with salmon in BC. 
Now let's move to the East Coast. The debate happening is whether fish farms can be part of a marine conservation area. Some people in the town council uh, think they can um, have their cake and eat it too. They can <laughs> have the, uh, you know, this uh, tourist attraction and have have fish farms. But Bob, knowing the data as you do about the impact of fish farms on the environment, on on salmon in particular, but just on the environment in general. What do you say to those people who are dreaming of uh, fish farms in a marine conservation area? Well, there's a, the things that I've learned over the years, um, I wish I knew when they first arrived or I wish I was involved. Um, they, I don't know, I, they have something, DFO has something called the Depomont. And it's a modeling uh, software written by a man named John Chamberlain. And every meeting I've been at, he's made sure to say, I'm not related to Bob. Um, but it's a modeling system for the dispersal of solid waste. And so it's how they uh, quantify the magic that happens, that this all just disappears and there's no worry here. But it's a very small window of tide evaluation, as an example. Uh, I would want to know the sites, are they soft bottom? Are they hard bottom? Because that, if it's soft, it's going to hold on to things and become deserts like we've seen here in British Columbia. I would want to, and I would suggest for the First Nations that know that they're salmon, Atlantic salmon as an example, where do they out-migrate? In terms of the marine protected areas and the operation of fish farms, um, what is the intent of a marine protected area if they're going to allow a destructive industry that externalizes all of its waste into the environment? How is that, um, how is that a cohesive um, use of a marine protected area? First off. Secondly, um, I would encourage anyone, First Nations or otherwise, that depend on wild salmon to understand where the out-migration routes are for the salmon. Because that's where I understand that fish farms have the greatest impact is on the out-migration. And this has to do with disease and pathogen shed and sea lice. And so these are things that um, some of them, like Piscine orthorheovirus as an example, if uh, like I'll use the Fraser River sockeye as an example, and the DFO ministers have always said, truthfully, that sockeye go past the fish farms very quickly. But if they pick up PRV or Piscine orthorheovirus, you can't test positive for that until six weeks after exposure, and so knowing that they pass the fish farms in BC very quickly, unless the department is going to follow those fish up into the Alaskan waters and do testing, they can't prove that their PRV is not being passed along. And when the science has shown a very high level of disease and pathogen shed from open net cage fish farms, to me, the probability is very high mm -hmm. that it's going to pass. And to know that they space the fish farms out for this very reason. So disease and pathogen from one farm won't land in an, on another farm. And so that's why they have them so far apart. But then to me, that the logic is then it's an opportunity. And then when I think about an opportunity, 
that is the potential to infringe on Aboriginal rights and treaty rights that are constitutionally protected. So I think that knowing where the out-migration routes of your smolts is critical to be able to have background information about what sea lice is present during the off-season. And what I mean by that, because we all know nature's perfect in every which way. So when adult salmon return from the ocean, they have sea lice on them. They get to the river where they go and spawn and die. And so the host for the sea lice dies. Fresh water is also something that's not good for sea lice. And so the region is cleansed by the time the little ones leave the river. But what happens now when sea lice is on the farm, it's producing larvae year-round. And so what happens then is when it used to be clear for the out-migration, they now run into sea lice. Mm. Right? And so that's where the unnatural aspect of this, of this industry has an impact. Mm. And to um, not, uh, I would encourage everybody to take a look at the uh, 2023 All-Party Standing Committee on Fisheries and Oceans, or FOPO, report of 2023, because they took a very close look at science and DFO. And the recommendations are very clear when you look at them, that what is happening is that it's a heavily biased and influenced by industry every step of the way. So you have an industry that is determining its own level of impact. And we learned about this in the consultation on Discovery Islands, where I really looked at the CSAS, Canadian Science Advisory Secretariat process, where it says a proponent brings science to CSAS. And then industry is allowed to participate and stakeholders. So I asked um, the top guy, Jay Parsons, He's not in DFO any longer, but he was the top science aquaculture guy. And so I said, okay, so the proponent is fish farm company number one. Industries, fish farm companies two, three, and four. And stakeholders are the industry associations. And he gave me the most wonderful bureaucratic three-minute non-answer, which then I had to interrupt him and say, Jay, it's a very straightforward answer. It's either yes or it's no. And he confirmed yes. So what that means is that group of industry sits beside the DFO aquaculture department that has a mandate to promote the industry, sits beside DFO science for aquaculture that has the same mandate. And they decide the terms of reference. They decide who else is going to be involved? They decide who's going to write the report on the science, and then they decide who's going to be the ones to do the peer review. So you can see it's rife and with conflict of interest, well beyond even the most basic. Mm. So uh, one thing that I've heard, um, and I'll, I'll email you the document that I have that shows that no changes in DFO since the COD collapse in this matter, this type of thing. And it shows that they are a captured regulator. So then I would, what we're pushing for in many ways is an independent science evaluation body, completely separate from promotion, completely separate. And then the peer review that is like science journal peer review, where someone shows up and gives them science. And they say, thank you. 
And then they, the journal selects people with the appropriate knowledge to do the analysis, to do the peer review. And then there's an outcome. That is the kind of peer review that Canadians and First Nations, especially First Nations with treaty rights and our Aboriginal rights, that is what we deserve. Bob Chamberlain, chair of the First Nations Wild Salmon Alliance. And that's it for the program. Look for us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And introducing our new website, Mi'kmaqMatters.com. Mi'kmaq Matters is brought to you with listener support. Become a patron at patreon.com slash Matters. The Mi'kmaq Matters team is producer Allison Baker, correspondent Greg Jaynes, and researcher Hilary McGinnis. I'm Glenn Wheeler, Amsadogamon.